The Blunt Post with Vic. Good morning and welcome to The Blunt Post with Vic. I am your host, Vic Jarami, the editor and publisher of The Blunt Post. The Blunt Post with Vic is a program that covers national breaking and headline news, offers analysis and commentary, and I interview members of Congress and other high-profile public figures. After the headlines, I have an interview with Michigan State Representative Mari Minukin and a recent interview with Los Angeles County Assessor Jeff Prang. Here are some headlines from over the weekend and as of this morning. This past Wednesday, January 6th, will definitely go down as the day that America realized how dangerous President Trump is when a mob of Trump supporters stormed the Capitol. The consequences were deadly. Five people have died as a result of Wednesday's riot, including a Capitol Police officer. Some of Trump's supporters were armed and ready to go to war, according to them. And an Alabama man allegedly parked the pickup truck with 11 homemade bombs ready to be set off. The president is ballistic, a senior administration official said after Twitter permanently took down his account, citing the possibility that it would be used in the final 12 days of Trump's presidency to incite violence. The official said Trump was scrambling to figure out what his next options are. House Majority Whip James Clyburn on Sunday said that House Democrats might want to wait after President-elect Joe Biden's first 100 days in office to send any articles of impeachment against President Trump to the Senate, a move that would give the incoming president time to tackle his agenda in Congress before the start of a time-consuming trial. By impeaching and removing Trump, even at this late stage of his term, the Senate could subsequently vote to disqualify him over holding federal office ever again, which will be taking an extraordinary action against a former president. After the first coronavirus case was reported in the U.S. in early 2020, it took about 90 days to reach 2 million cases. But just Nine days into 2021, more than 2 million people have been infected with COVID-19, according to data from Johns Hopkins University. In that same time frame, an additional 24,260 deaths have been reported. 22.1 million people have been infected so far and 372,420 people killed by COVID-19 in the U.S. The biggest vaccination campaign in history has begun. More than 24 million doses in 41 countries have been administered, according to data collected by Bloomberg. Vaccinations in the U.S. began December 14th with healthcare workers, and so far, 7.73 million doses have been given, according to a state-by-state tally by Bloomberg and data from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Across the U.S., 2.4 doses have been administered for every 100 people, and 35% of shots distributed to the states have been administered. Let's get blunt. Let's get blunt. Today's Let's Get Blunt segment's pretty short and simple, and it's about the way media, public figures, officials categorize and call certain 
incidents and such and how it's really biased. What happened in DC was nothing short of terrorism. This large group of Trump supporters stormed the Capitol and they terrorized people. They caused the death of five people. If that's not terrorism, then I don't know what is. So why are some media outlets or high-profile public figures calling it other things like anarchy and such? You know, if we're going to treat everyone equally, we should categorize terrorism equally as well. You know, domestic or international makes no difference. Terrorism is the same no matter what. It's terrorizing people and threatening them. And in this case, uh, five people were killed because of it. Let's get blunt. The Blunt Post with Vic. Michigan State Representative Mari Minukian is serving her first term representing the 40th district of the Great Lakes State since 2018. She currently serves as Assistant Minority Whip for the House Democrats. At 28, Representative Minukian is the youngest woman serving in the 100th legislature and the first Armenian-American woman to serve in the Michigan House of Representatives. Prior to joining the legislature, she served in various capacities of public service at the federal level, including interning for then-Congressman John D. Dingell, working with the Council on Foreign Relations, and assisting Ambassador Samantha Power at the U.S. Mission to the United Nations. Manukian also worked in the Office of English Language Programs and E-Diplomacy at the U.S. Department of State, where she served with foreign and civil service officers. Representative Manukian, thank you for being on the Blunt Post with Vic today. How are you doing? I'm doing well. How are you? I am well. How are things in Michigan uh, in this sort of beginning of this year and everything that's been behind us and continues? Things are uh, continuing to be interesting in Michigan. Um, over the past week, we had um, a bomb threat at our Capitol the day after the uh, insurrection that took place at the United States Capitol in Washington, D.C. Um, so, you know, unfortunately, some of the rather challenging events of 2020 are not in our rearview mirror, and they're very much squarely uh, in front of us at this point. Yeah, absolutely. What is the mood like in Michigan in terms of uh, COVID-19 and how the state is handling and uh, dealing with this? Yeah, I mean, uh, Governor Gretchen Whitmer has made some very difficult calls uh, in terms of keeping the public safe. Um, things that we knew would be um, a bit of a challenge to ensure were enforced. Um, but at the end of the day, um, the, the work that she's done um, has saved countless lives. Um, and so, you know, as we look forward here, um, the thing that we uh, Michiganders are looking forward to is obviously getting vaccinated. Um, it's something that's a really, really important thing um, and making sure we're able to continue uh, the vaccine rollout here in Michigan uh, will help us get back to a semblance of normal as soon as possible. And is that going smoothly? Is it going fast enough? You know, I think that we could be doing a better job. Um, this week, we announced that we are opening up vaccinations to teachers and folks who are 65 and older, uh, which is great. We're really excited about that. Um, but one of the challenges we faced was, uh, frankly, I think people didn't anticipate the 65 and older crowd to be as tech savvy as they were. And um, some of the online systems that were used to uh, sign up for vaccinations, um, it, those systems actually crashed. Um, our 
Beaumont Healthcare System is one of the major health uh, systems and hospitals in Southeast Michigan, and their uh, their application that they use called MyChart actually crashed because so many folks were signing up for uh, times to get vaccinated. Um, so those are some of those logistical challenges that we've been facing throughout the pandemic. Obviously, I know you're in uh, California, and so the uh, challenges we have uh, with with unemployment are very real and the those systems need to be uh, modernized and improved. Um, and so we're seeing all of these things play out here as we move through the pandemic as well. Yeah, it makes sense. I think uh, we're, in, we're in the same boat. So many challenges have to do with, we just have to find the solutions as we go along because yes. they're so complicated yep. and layered. Yep, and it's hard to tell, um, you know, when the system isn't under stress uh, in in the way that it has been over the past uh, almost a year, um, it's hard to tell that there are some of these challenges in the systems. But as soon as there's a stress uh, stressor on it, like uh, something like a global pandemic, you can clearly see where those challenges lie and where there needs to be improvements. Yeah, hopefully, um, President-elect Biden will uh, revamp and bring back the pandemic response team. So yes, we can, we absolutely. Don't have to go through this again. Yeah, you know, and I think one of the things that we're looking forward to here is that he selected a chief of staff who is the Ebola czar, uh, the person who helped make sure that there wasn't a full-blown pandemic of Ebola in the United States. And right. so having him in such a prominent role in his administration is going to be, is to me, a sign of, uh, a good sign of things to come. Indeed, something to be hopeful for. Um, Representative Manukin, so I wanted to talk to you about what's happening in halfway around the world in Artsakh, also known as Nagorno-Karabakh, part of historic Armenia that was handed over to be under USSR Azerbaijan rule by Stalin illegally, which has been sort of contested and Armenians have applied many times through the decades to connect back with Armenia, which has resulted in the pogroms uh, over 30 years ago and massacres of Armenians uh, and this recent attack, which was sort of a proxy assault. I refuse to call it a war because mm-hmm. it was a genocidal assault and ethnic cleansing a proxy by Turkey, Erdogan of Turkey uh, vis-a-vis Azerbaijan. Mm-hmm. And the uh, reason I want to talk to you about it is because you're you know, you've been very vocal about it, very proactive about it. You passed Resolution 319 in the Michigan uh, House of Representatives, which condemned this attack by Azerbaijan and Turkey. So I'm just going to let you tell me your impression and where we are with that. Yeah. And, you know, in Michigan, obviously, we have a large Armenian-American diaspora population. Um, and so in the past, um you know, Michigan was the eighth state to recognize the independence of Artsakh. Uh, my good friend, former Senator David Knizek, uh did so much, uh, or did this back in 2017. Uh, and um, I actually had the pleasure of being there when that resolution was passed on the floor of the Michigan Senate. So um, Michigan has a long-standing history of being supportive of Artsakh season and the Republic of Artsakh. And so um, to me, it was no... Uh, you know, it was it made perfect sense for us to introduce House Resolution uh, 319. And then I worked with the majority party uh, as a Democrat. I serve in the minority. So this was a negotiated uh, conversation, but worked really closely with folks uh, in leadership on the other side of the aisle 
uh, to ensure that this vote was um, bipartisan. And um, I think, you know, what's really important to note here is um, the resolution came about in the very early stages of the conflict. Um, I think we were able to, you know, introduce the resolution and pass it within, uh, you know, five days of introduction, which is very rare in the Michigan House to move a piece of legislation that quickly, yeah. uh, which goes to show just how there was zero, um, no controversy around it. That, you know, uh, the Azari embassy tried to contact and pressure lawmakers, but at the end of the day, uh, we were able to pass the resolution on a voice vote. And it, so it passed unanimously. Um, so there was no controversy around whether or not we were going to be able to get the resolution done. Uh, you know, folks in the Michigan legislature knew what the right thing was to do, and we were able to do it. Yeah, that was, I mean, I watched it on TV. It was very exciting, and it was very fast. I was very impressed with that. This is The Blunt Post with Vic. I am your host, Vic Jaramie, and you are listening to my interview with Michigan State Representative Mari Manukin. Are you just as surprised about the inaction of the international community, certain organizations, uh, in terms of what happened, the six weeks war, if you will, and even now when prisoners of war are being kept by Azerbaijan, they are executed, tortured, mutilated, and uh, nobody seems to want to take the lead and intervene. Are you just as surprised by that? I wish I could say I was surprised, but frankly, I'm not. Um, you know, being a student of international affairs, having worked at the United States Department of State before, um, and being, you know, very under, you know, well steeped and having a good understanding of what happens when, uh, frankly, what is to me, um, you know, what became a proxy war. Um, this is something that, you know, unfortunately, I'm not surprised by. Um, you know, understanding that, you know, within the past uh, 48 hours, we've seen praise come from. Donald Trump's State Department saying, you know, how exciting it is that this new uh, gas corridor has opened up uh, for Azerbaijan. Um, and so, you know, we are of the under, you know, for me, uh, as a as a student of international affairs, understanding the sort of realism that comes with this, um, you know, that uh, unfortunately, um, I am unsurprised by the, the international community in the United States uh, not prioritizing this conflict. Um, it is incredibly frustrating. It's something that, um, you know, in my conversations with the transition team here for the new leadership that's coming into the United States government now, um, you know, it's something that we are continuing to have ongoing uh, conversations about um, so that we're able to, you know, we can't turn back the clock and we can't uh, bring back those who were lost in this conflict, but we can move forward and do the right thing and provide an appropriate amount of humanitarian aid. Um, and adjust U.S. policy so that we are more in line with uh, doing what's right uh, with regard to human rights. Yeah, well said. You know, oil is uh, thicker than blood, and Caspian oil, the Europe specifically, is very thirsty for it, and they're willing to turn a blind eye to the crimes of Azerbaijan and Turkey, which, uh, uh, you know, Erdogan, I don't know how many... Uh, international laws is broken by what he did and you have from NATO to European Union, United Nations, uh, Council of Europe, um, just completely mute playing three monkeys. Um, thank goodness we have we have lawmakers here in the states that have been very vocal about it such as yourself, Senator Menendez and Congressman uh, Pallone and Adam yep. Schiff and Jackie Spear, etc. 
Do you have hope uh, in terms of any kind of a, a meaningful change with the Biden administration that they will stand up to what Erdogan is doing? I do. Um, you know, and I, I have that hope uh, simply through, um, you know, having these conversations with folks who are who are sort of in the decision making roles with the new administration, but also, you know, seeing the consistency of the statements that have come out of the Biden campaign when he was running for president. Um, you know, it's very clear that this was a path that Erdogan has been going down for a long time um, and it's become untenable in the in the region. Um, and uh, the Biden administration, um, incoming Biden administration is very well aware of that. Good. It's that's good to hear. I mean, I do have some hope that um, Mr. Blinken will um, take a different approach than Secretary Pompeo uh, did. Yes, which was, I'm hopeful of the same thing. Yeah, which was no approach. This is the Blunt Post with Vic. I am your host, Vic Jarami, and you are listening to my interview with Michigan State Representative Mari Manukin. I want to change topics just a bit, if I may, as I was getting ready to. Um, to speak with you, I was doing some research on Michigan, uh, and I came across the Michigan House Dems uh, introducing a legislation to affirm marriage equality in Michigan, and I believe this happened last year. Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, this is interesting because we, you know, federal on a federal level, we we were granted marriage equality in 2015. So I wasn't. I mean, I read a little bit about it, but I want to let you. Tell me what that is, because as a as a gay man, I'm very interested in this and why this happened or was necessary. Yeah. So, of course, um, you know, the Supreme Court decision that uh, that guaranteed marriage equality um, was a huge landmark uh, decision for uh, the United States and the LGBTQ population within this country. However, um, there are many states that still have laws on the books that. Uh, discriminate against LGBTQ folks. Um, There's a few different ways that that exists in Michigan. Um, One of those things is that um, LGBTQ folks are not considered uh, protected in our civil rights laws. Um, And so every year, uh, every every term, uh, we introduce legislation that would update our civil rights laws to allow basically uh, one of the biggest things that I can think of off the top of my head that uh, that updating this legislation would help is um, helping with regard to um, adoptions as well as um, making sure that housing discrimination can't take place. And so um, while there may be federal laws in place that would prohibit that, um, there isn't uh, state law on the books that prohibits that. Um, and you could end up in a situation where a judge um, would take states' rights over federal uh, precedent um, and apply the law as such. And so you could be in a situation where there would be discriminatory action, and that could end up having to go all the way up to the Supreme Court, uh, which, of course, takes a very long time and um, is a huge challenge for for the folks who are being discriminated against. And so it's really important that we update our laws here in the states to be reflective um, you know, of the, of the time that we're living in. Um, and to be, of course, also reflective of that Supreme Court case um, and what it upheld. And so, um, you know, there's various pieces of legislation that we've introduced over the course of the past couple of years. I imagine that now that we're in a new session, we will continue to introduce them. And uh, we're hopeful that, you know, while we're still serving in the minority as Democrats in the Michigan legislature for the next couple of years, uh, we're hopeful that we'll see some movement. And if we don't, then, you know, obviously for us, if we take majority uh, in in two years, we'll be able to make sure that those are passed. Well said. Yeah, for sure. I think some people don't realize that in 30 states, 
uh, LGBTQ people can be fired from their job just for that's being right. queer. So um, for sure, that's uh, hopefully we'll we'll have the Equality Act pass, and we can do away with that. I think what threw me off about this was that uh, just the phrase "affirm marriage equality." I think that's what threw me off. I thought, why do we need to affirm it since it's it's affirmed on a national level? But uh, you explained it very well. You know, in terms of in terms of like your not just your district but uh, Michigan, what are some of the challenges? that you're facing, of course, you know, COVID-19 is certainly one, unemployment, uh, all of that, but anything specific that's a challenge for you and your constituents? Yeah, I mean, of course, there's those big challenges that COVID has sort of uh, brought to light for all of us here in Michigan. But one of the things that exists, whether or not we're in the middle of a pandemic, is uh, the challenge that Michiganders face when they drive on our roads and on our bridges and just how unsafe our infrastructure is. Um, you know, we saw with the Flint water crisis back in 2014 and 15 that our infrastructure for clean drinking water is uh, very old and needs to be updated and needs to be invested in. Um, and the same goes for the infrastructure that you can see and you can drive on, like our roads and our bridges. And, um, you know, until we have a really honest conversation about how we can raise revenue to do that kind of uh, major work, whether that's a conversation that has to be had uh, both at the federal level or at the state level or both, um, you know, we're going to continue to see our uh, infrastructure fall into disrepair, further disrepair over the next, uh, you know, how many years until we solve that challenge. Yeah, absolutely. I think some of that is sort of a nationwide problem with bridges and roads and such. Exactly. Yep. But, uh, we haven't really invested in any upcoming, any initiative or any projects that you are working on. It could be pertaining to anything local or the state or just otherwise. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, just... At this point, we haven't had our opening day of session yet, um, but a couple of things, uh, one thing legislatively and then one thing more broadly. Um, I'm really looking forward to, frankly, for myself getting vaccinated so I'm able to be safe. We're still meeting in person in the legislature. I know some state legislatures around the country have moved to remote uh, participation, but we haven't. Um, and so I think it's going to be really important for our public safety and our public health to um, ramp up our vaccination campaigns. And I'm excited to be part of that solution. Um, the other thing that um, in terms of legislation that we're continuing to work on is um, a push to end distracted driving. I know um, that there's many states who have adopted um, legislation that is much more stringent than we have in Michigan regarding texting and driving and cell phone use mm -hmm. while driving. And um, that was something I had worked on in my my first term. We were able to pass a bill, uh, but we didn't pass it through the Senate. So it wasn't signed into law. So we're starting that process over again. Uh, this term, and we look forward to um, hopefully seeing it come through and be signed into law by the governor. I like that. We need that in California. <laughs> we, that, I, I love it. I love the name to distracted driving because it just seems like everyone's distracted with something, and I'm, you know, I'm certainly guilty of it myself sometimes. Um, exactly. So I appreciate that, Representative Manukin. Before we go, is there anything you'd like to add? Anything I've missed? Didn't bring up? I think we covered it all. <laughs> well, it was really good uh, speaking with you. Um, you are definitely uh, a rock star, and uh, you know we 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 admire you and support you. And um, I look forward to speaking with you again. Sounds great. It was really a great time. I appreciate your time, Vic. <laughs> Thank you. That was Michigan State Representative Marie Manukian. 
who is definitely a rock star and uh, an exceptional elected official who gets things done. Uh, thank you, Representative Manukian, for being on The Blunt Post with Vic today. The Blunt Post with Vic. L.A. County Assessor Jeff Prang was sworn in as the 27th Assessor for the County of Los Angeles in 2014 and then again by a wide margin in 2018. Assessor Prang served for 18 years as a council member for the city of West Hollywood, including four terms as mayor, among many other positions in public sector. Upon taking office in 2014 as the L.A. County Assessor, Mr. Prang implemented sweeping reforms to ensure that the strictest ethical guidelines rooted in fairness, accuracy, and integrity would be adhered to in his office. The L.A. County Assessor's Office is the largest office of its kind in the nation with 1,400 employees and provides the foundation for a property tax system that generates $17 billion annually. Thank you for being on The Blunt Post with Vic this morning. How are you? I'm doing very well. Thank you so much. Good to, good to be with you, Vic. Thank you. How are things with you, the Assessor's Office, and L.A. County, just the general as we are amid this, uh, you know, this uh, pandemic? Well, I would say that the uh, county assessor's office is like, similar to what's happening in uh, lots of other government agencies. We're trying to do the best we could do to provide the essential services that government provides while keeping members of the public as well as our employees safe. We have uh, uh, the L.A. County government in general is uh, uh, focused on having its employees work from home and on any given day, 85 to 95% of my 1,400 employees are teleworking. You know, when we first got started, it was a bit of an adjustment. Um, you know, people are at home, they have childcare or other type of, uh, you know, uh, maybe caretaker um, type issues to be concerned about. There are differentials in the types of technology that they have at home as opposed to what they have at the office. So it uh, had a bit of impact on our on our work, but you know we're finding the uh, finding the rhythm and getting things done. Thank you for that. So you are the assessor of the largest number of constituents of any county in the U.S. You know you talked about you know how COVID nineteen has affected affected. Well, did you want to correct me on something? Go ahead. No, I'm certain that a lot of you are listeners do not know anything about the assessor. What I do know is that probably 99% of the people think they knew, know what the assessor does. Right. They think the assessor collects taxes, which he doesn't. Um, the assessor does not collect taxes. There's another, another guy with a really intuitive title who does that, and he's called the tax collector. Really right. easy to, uh, <laughs> to uh, di- differentiate. So the assessor's office, uh, it's one of three elected offices countywide. The other two are much better known, the district attorney, and the uh, uh, and the sheriff, the assessor's job is to uh, uh, fairly accurately and and thoroughly value all taxable property in the county, both real property, meaning land and improvements, as well as what we call business personal property, which is equipment and machinery, furniture um, in uh, in a business environment. And the LA County Assessor's Office is the largest assessment agency of its type in the United States. As I mentioned previously, I've got about 1,400 employees and a budget of $200 million, and we're responsible for assessing the value of 2.5 million um, 
parcels and business assessments annually, which last year was valued at $1.77 trillion. Wow. Keep in mind, that's the assessed value. That's uh, your your property for assessment purposes is determined at the time uh, that you you acquire the property. The market value is probably considerably higher than $1.7 trillion. And so we... uh, um, and this becomes the foundation for the property tax system. This is how local governments, such as school districts, cities, as well as county services, are paid for, uh, primarily through property taxes. Another source is uh, sales tax, of course. So that's what we do. We're kind of one of those foundational behind-the-scenes um, government agencies. People don't really quite know what we do. Um, yeah. Myself and the other 57 assessors in uh, California, you know, we, we all deal with uh, the confusion that the public has about who, who does what in the property tax chain, and most people think we collect taxes, and they call us the tax assessor, which is actually not, not an accurate title. Right. Uh, um, tax assessor is a conflation of actually two separate departments, the assessor and the tax collector. Yeah. Um, but we do the best we can do to steer people in the right direction and answer their questions and provide the service that they need. Yeah, I'm glad you cleared that out. I've actually heard you sort of really specifically explain what an assessor does, but of course it's something that needs to be needs to be said over and over again and you actually you also answered my next question which was what's the biggest misconception about uh, the LA County Assessor's office? Uh, and thank you for clarifying about um, what I meant about the size of the assessor's office in the country. Go ahead. I do a lot of public speaking. I try to do, uh, I speak to a lot of uh, community groups, you know, realtors, rotaries, chambers of commerce, and I do the best I can do to try to shed some light on how the system works. The, the property tax administration is actually pretty complicated in California because there's a whole lot of departments that are involved. Um, but in most counties, only the assessor is elected. The rest, the rest of them are appointed by the Board of Supervisors. But, you know, Kind of the way our system works is if you buy a house or property, you record a deed with the registrar recorder. Right. And then, um, or if you do new construction on your existing property, you pull a building permit with the city. And then the city and the registrar recorder send us those permits and deeds. And then my people, who uh, primarily are appraisers, you know, the real estate appraisers and business appraisers, they determine what the value is. And we, we, the, the annual inventory of all the value of property we call the assessment rule. Um, we then turn that over to another department that most people are not familiar with called the auditor controller. And the auditor controller is the one who assigns you your tax rates. They're the ones who tell you what you owe. And then they send that information to another department, the treasurer and tax collector, who sends the bills and collects payments. And so... Um, as you can see, it's it's kind of complicated. Yeah. Um, the assessor is probably the best known. What's kind of funny though is the tax bills were the tax bills were just due on December 10th, and they're mailed out from the tax collector's office. And the LA County tax collector is a gentleman by the name of Keith Knox. And when you receive that bill, it has Keith Knox's name on it, and says Treasurer and Tax Collector. And when people call about their their bill, if they have an issue, they call our offices and say, I just got something from yeah. you. And I always want to say, well, how, you know, my name is nowhere, <laughs> is nowhere on that bill. Yeah. Um, but people are so hardwired in thinking it's the assessor or right. what they, economist conception, tax assessor, 
um, leads them to uh, to our office, and Makes we can sense. usually help them with a lot of lower level uh, Makes sense. questions. But frequently, we have to refer them over to the tax collector's office to assist. Yeah, I can I can see how many calls you would have just just for that one mistake. This is the Blunt Post with Vic. I am your host, Vic Jarami, and you are listening to my interview with LA County Assessor Jeff Prang discussing property values and property taxes post-COVID-19. So let me ask you this. How has COVID-19 affected property values in LA County? So there obviously is going to be an impact on the real estate market. So there's a few things that we're watching carefully and that uh, that we're trying to quantify right now uh, in the middle of COVID. So here's a few, a, a couple things. One is the median sales price for a single-family detached home in L.A. County has actually increased rather precipitously since uh, the pandemic first started back in uh, about March. Wow. Um, the, the median sales price of a single-family home is about countywide. It's about seven hundred forty-five thousand, up about ninety thousand over the same period last year. That's a pretty strong increase. Um, but we are, but, but there is some there's some caveats to that. One of the things that we're seeing is that homes that are selling are tending to be at the higher end of the market. There is not a lot of turnover at um, medium to lower lower end of the housing market. Um, at the same time, we're also not seeing reduction in values at the lower end. That's relatively stable, but to the degree that there is movement, property values at the higher end are uh, uh, continuing to increase. A couple reasons for that. One is historically low interest rates is keeping the market uh, moving. Um, additionally, uh, inventory is down. People are waiting out the uh, the, the crisis, and they're not, they're not selling or buying right now, so there's not as many things available to buy. So that's pushing up, uh, uh, pushing up values at the uh, at the higher end. But we also know that sales volume, the sales year over year, are down about forty five percent as of October. Wow. The other piece that we're watching carefully is the, the commercial side of uh, of of the market. Um, I was uh, showed a study about a month or so ago that seemed to suggest that uh, uh, commercial office space um, and uh, property values are down about 25% due to COVID. Um, the other part of the commercial side that's really impacted is uh, hospitality, which is broadly defined as, as hotels or restaurants, as well as retail. Obviously, stores are closed. Some of them will not be coming, coming back. Um, hotels are operating at 30% occupancy, where normally there's anywhere between 70 and 85% occupancy. Um, there's an assumption that it may take several years for that to recover. So next uh, next year, we are, are, are expecting to see some categories of commercial properties actually lose value. And um, so the, the way that we do our job is that we we take a snapshot of property values once a year, January 1st. We, it's called the lean date. So you're we assume we calculate the value of your property on the lien date for property tax purposes. And if your market value of your property on January 1st is less than essentially what you paid for it, you may be entitled to property tax relief. If you want a hotel for $10 million last year, 
due to COVID, now it's only worth $7 million, you'll be entitled to property tax relief. Okay, that's fair. But I do want to, I want to emphasize to people who own property, who, who think that the property has lost value, this is, this is a very confusing point here. Um, if you lose equity, you're, you're not, losing equity alone does not entitle you to property tax relief. You, the, uh, you must lose value beneath your base year. Your base year is the year that you, whatever you buy the property, and then there's a, a, what we call an adjusted base year because each year your property assessment can be adjusted as much as 2%. So over time, that base year will increase a little bit. Um, but when the market value is less than your base year, you are entitled to property tax relief. And right. we, will, we will apply that pro, prospect, uh, uh, proactively. We will try to identify those properties and we will actively lower the value. But if, uh, if you own property and you, you can also file what's called a decline in value application, um, ask, which is an administrative request for us to review the value of it to see if it uh, sh- should be adjusted. Or in some cases, you can actually file an assessment appeal to have the assessment appeals board uh, make, it, make it a determination. This is The Blunt Post with Vic. I am your host, Vic Jaramie, and you are listening to my interview with L.A. County Assessor Jeff Prang discussing property values and property taxes post-COVID-19. So, like, if you bought a house in 2010 for 500000 and right before COVID, it was uh, valued at 900000 but because of COVID, right. it's now worth, or it's valued at 700000 you've still increased 200000 yeah, in, Right. You lost $200,000 in equity, but your base year was 500000 so you're two thousand dollars in the uh, two hundred thousand dollars in the black. So in those cases, you would not be entitled to prop, yeah, property tax relief that makes under sense. the law. But if you if you purchase your property for five hundred thousand dollars in twenty ten, then in twenty twenty pre COVID it was worth a million. Then after COVID it's worth three hundred thousand dollars. You would be entitled to to relief. That makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. And so this that's going to keep us. One of the things that's really uh, uh, kind of counterintuitive about our job as well is that during a recession when government is tightening its belt and uh, trying to reduce services, that's when when things actually get really busy for us because not only do we have to do our, our normal work, but now we have to go back and look at properties that may have been negatively impacted and make adjustments for those. So it's uh, even more time time intensive for us. Yeah, that's... But we're, um, one of the basic tenets of, of the law is you're not supposed you're supposed to pay what uh, property taxes an accurate amount, not more or less. So it's really incumbent upon us to make sure that we're um, reflecting those changes to uh, to property values to ensure people are, get the the relief that they're entitled to. Right, and I'm sure that there's there's some people that have false expectations of what should happen just because of COVID and things like that. There are a lot of those types of expectations, primarily because people don't, uh, they really don't know how the, uh, um, the, the system works. And that's what, been one of the struggles I've had since I've been assessor now for six years. And it is such a, uh, an obscure office. Uh, in past years, I, th- I think people have been pretty hard-pressed to tell you if they knew who the assessor was or were even aware that was an elective office. Um, the... Um, 
in fact, as an aside, I'm, I'm always confused with the L.A. City Controller, which is a totally different office, different jurisdiction, uh, a totally different job. Right. But uh, um, we're, I've worked very hard over the last six, six years to expand our public education efforts, trying to go to people where they were, where they are, um, uh, to get as much information on the, uh, on, on the Internet to help uh, people navigate what can be a very, very... Uh, confusing confusing system and there's a lot of things we do that a lot of folks unfortunately will come into contact with whether they want to or not uh, for example most people don't know that when a property owner dies you're required by law to notify my office within 150 days that there was a death and if you don't do so it's going to totally screw up any inheritance in estate planning could end up causing that your property to be reassessed even under circumstances where it shouldn't be um, could end up Forcing uh, supplemental tax bills, and and once you start getting into the the, the billing cycle, it's very hard. To, it takes a long time to get out of it, and if you have to pay money up front, that takes a long time to get it back. So, I'm doing the best I can do to try to let people know about these sort of you have what I call re- retail levels of interaction with our office. You have because I've I've seen you all over the place. You've definitely put a face with the name L.A. County Assessor, and we appreciate that. I want to ask you, for next year, 2021, what can people look forward to from your office and related, uh, perhaps some initiatives you're working on or some good news? Well, there's a, there's a, there's a couple things that I'm focused on. Some of it, well, I think the public would if we talk about the... the would see the value in it and recognize that these things are really important to us. They may not see how it impacts them directly, but we are in the process, uh, toward the end of a process of replacing our technology platform. It's a $100 million project to upgrade our system from an old mainframe system to uh, a new 21st century system that will make things much more uh, productive for our employees and make it much easier for the public to get information and get uh, answers to the questions or to take care of some other processes now that are essentially paper-based and, and, and manual. I think the other thing that we're going to be, we're going to be focused on is, um, as I stated, we are, we are not a revenue department per se. Our job is not to generate revenue. Our job is to reflect the value of property, whether it goes up or down. However, we're also responsible to make sure that everything that should be accounted for is accounted for. So if there's a, if we only account for 97% of the taxable property in the county, that 3% that we're missing represents millions of dollars in revenue. And the reason that revenue is important is because that's what pays the salaries of teachers. That's what's paying the salaries of these public hospital doctors and nurses. It pays for police and fire and roads and parks and libraries and uh, tree trimming and trash collection, all the things that we depend on is paid for predominantly through through property taxes. So while my job is not to uh, generate revenue, but the more thorough that we are in our job, um, the more revenue there will be to pay for those services. And it's more important in the wake of COVID um, than ever before because People are, are quarantined at home, so sales taxes are way down. Um, 
other types of government revenues are down, even parking fines in some cities like West Hollywood. You know, parking fines were a, right. a huge part of the uh, city's uh, city's revenue, and they're, they're they're down significantly because they're not issuing parking tickets. So they're more reliant on those sources of funds that are uh, that are left, and that's uh, that's property taxes. I can't. I do. I I do know that the. We are anticipating that property value growth for 2020, 2021 will be in the net positive, but it will be this significantly lower rate than it was last year. So we're working hard to get our get the job done to provide the same level of service, ensure that we provide that floor to uh, ensure that those vital public services we all rely that we all rely on that city council members and school board members and supervisors have available to them to uh, to support those services. This is The Blunt Post with Vic. I am your host, Vic Jaramie, and you are listening to my interview with L.A. County Assessor Jeff Prang discussing property values and property taxes post-COVID-19. Yeah, because some of the fallout from COVID-19 is it's going to have a, a later effect into next year, probably year, you know, years to come. Well, it's because it's... Uh, it, it was a, a shock to the system. So some of the things that L.A. County did that you're also seeing in the city of L.A. as well as a lot of other cities, they're, uh, they're implemented hiring freezes. So people who do critical jobs aren't, uh, aren't filling them. They've, uh, uh, they may have uh, furloughed or laid people off. They may have uh, eliminated uh, uh, cost of living adjustment raises for public employees. They may have cut programs and services. And it takes a while to uh, to ramp that back up again. It's not, you can't just flip a switch and put everything back in order. A lot of those people have, uh, people who have moved on, you need to, uh, hire, hiring people is, uh, takes a little bit longer in, in government, reinitiating programs that have been shut down. It takes time. Yeah. But it's also, uh, it's very likely that the vaccination process to get everybody in this country uh, inoculated will take the better part of 2021. Yeah, I, I read that for the vaccinations to really have some sort of an impact nationally, it'll be well into 2021. So we have a we have a lot of work to do in 2021. Yes, indeed. So thank you for all of that. You just gave a lot of great, dense information. Anyone who's listening, I hope... Uh, they now know what an L.A. County assessor does, or an assessor does, I should say. Um, assessor Prang, um, just one, is there anything I missed or any question I should have asked you that people would want so, to know? There is. Let me give you the, 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 some hopefully good news, not uh, earth-shattering news, but <laughs> good news. But if you're a homeowner or a condo owner um, and you live in that home or condo, you are entitled to what's called the homeowner's exemption. Now, the homeowner's exemption allows me to reduce your assessed value by $7,000 for tax purposes. So it'll save you, uh, you know, uh, one, it'll save you 70 bucks a year on your property taxes. Not a huge savings, but I know that right now a lot of people are struggling, and anything you can do to save money, I'm sure you'd appreciate. You only have to file once. Um, the thing is, about 30% of all L.A. County homeowners and condo owners do not apply for the homeowner's exemption, primarily because they don't know about it. Um, uh. And so I've been working hard to try to uh, let people know that this is something you can apply for. It's really easy to download the form at our web website, which is assessor 
www.lacounty.gov. Um, there's a little button on the left-hand side that says lower my taxes and look for the homeowner's exemption. Print out the form and mail it in, and uh, you, you'll save a little bit of money every year for as long as you live in that home. That's a great tip. And there's, there may be some other programs in there that uh, that apply to you. There's programs for veterans, for seniors, for the disabled, um, as well as if you're the victim of a fire or flood or earthquake, uh, you can get property tax relief in those circumstances as well. And um, they're all clearly laid out on, on the website. Okay. So just check out your website for links and information. Assessor.pelicani.gov. Fantastic. Well, Assessor Prank, thank just you. Just as a tip for... to people, when you go, when you look, go, to, go look for our website. Don't type in my name and go to my campaign website. A lot of people <laughs> <Right>. do that. <laughs> they go to, go to the assessor's website, not to the Jeffrey Prang website. Exactly. Exactly. Well, thank you for for all of that great information and for your time. Very glad that you were on the show today. Thank you so much. It's uh, great to be with you today. I'm glad we had a chance to uh, share some of this information with your listeners, and I uh, look forward to coming back sometime in the future. Fantastic. Thank you. That was L.A. County Assessor Jeff Prang clarifying a lot of misconceptions about what the assessor's office does and also giving us a lot of great information. He is uh, definitely one of the hardest working elected officials uh, that I know. So thank you, Assessor Prank, for being on The Blunt Post with Vic today. The Blunt Post with Vic. I have three tweets to read you today. The first one is from John Favreau. He wrote, I can't stop thinking about the 147 House Republicans and six senators who still voted to overturn the election just hours after the attack. It's every bit as sociopathic and un-American as anything Trump has done, and we should do whatever we can do to end their political careers. The next one is from former governor of New Jersey, Chris Christie. He wrote, if Trump's actions aren't impeachable, then I don't really know what is. The last one is from Jake Tapper. He wrote, it's hideous, but we must acknowledge it. The White House flags are not at half staff in memory of Officer Sicknick because Trump doesn't mourn him. Trump hasn't said a word about him or a word condemning the terrorists because Trump loves the terrorists. He told them right after the attack. Before we go, I want to thank my extremely talented producer, Ricky Herrera. And uh, of course, thank you for joining me for another episode of The Blunt Post with Vic. Please tune in next Monday at 7 a.m. for another episode. For more information, you can visit thebluntpostwithvic.com. You can also follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Vic Jaramie. Uh, both Instagram and Twitter, my handle is at Vic Jaramie. That's V-I-C-G-E-R-A-M-I. The Blunt Post with Vic.